Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Science is real from the Big Bang to DNA. Science is real from evolution to the Milky Way. I like those stories about angels, unicorns, and elves. Now I like those stories as much as anybody else. But when I'm seeking knowledge, either simple or abstract, the facts are with science. The All right, indeed. It's the perfect song, really, for Occam's Razor, which we're going to talk about today. Occam's Razor is, you know, it's kind of out there in the culture all the time, gets mentioned all the time, sometimes gets misquoted or or misrepresented. Uh, We'll talk about all of that today. We are fortunate to have with us later in the show Dr. Lisa Sanders, uh, who is the author of the diagnosis column for the New York Times Sunday Magazine, and is kind of the basis for the character House. Uh, and Kurt Anderson will be joining us. Uh, I don't probably don't need to tell you he's Mr. Studio 360 uh, and author of several books, one of which I think is very relevant to the conversation we're having today. But uh, to begin things, I was excited to discover the reason we're doing this show, in fact, was I discovered that there's a, a book out about William of Ockham and about Ockham's Razor. Uh, it's called Life is Simple. How Occam's Razor Set Science Free and Shapes the Universe. It's by John Joe McFadden. Uh, he, a scientist, writing about this uh, um, this principle of science, if that's the right word. Uh, and he's with us to begin the show. Welcome, John Joe McFadden. And he might need to unmute. So while we're doing that, uh, and okay, so so welcome to the show, John Joe McFadden. Thank you, Colin. Pleasure to be here, and uh, hello to Connecticut. <laughs> as well. well, hello to you wherever you are. Where are you right now? Uh, in the UK, in okay. London. Okay. So um, uh, just to sort of set the stage here, and if you'll forgive me just in the interest of speed, I'll try to kind of sort of summarize, get us into this so that you can you can begin talking a little bit more about it. So William of Ockham, this is a figure from the 14th century. Uh, I think he's around 12 or 12, between 12 and 14 years old, probably when he's inducted into the Franciscan Friars. Uh, we're seeing the beginning of the university movement at that time. There's the University of Paris and there's, uh, of course, Oxford. He winds up at Oxford. And he does a lot of different things uh, in the area of logic, language, and metaphysics, gets into a knockdown, drag-out fight with one of the popes, uh, ultimately gets excommunicated. Uh, and, and having lived this kind of really interesting life, uh, oh, winds up kind of in the care of the Holy Roman Emperor after that. Uh, but what survives really for most people, if anything survives, is this notion of Occam's razor. So uh, I'm going to hand it off to you. And uh, it's often st- stated or rephrased in different ways, but uh, you do it the way that you're the most happy with. Yeah, sure. Thanks, uh, Colin. It's a great uh, summary of uh, William's life and achievements. Um, the uh, Occam's razor is the principle, simply put, that we take the simplest explanations of any problems. Uh, It's often uh, written as entities should not be multiplied beyond necessity. And what that means is that the entities are the components of an argument or an explanation or a theory. 
So what William of Ockham said was keep them simple. So if you need to explain lights in the sky, think airplanes, think satellites, think shooting stars before you start to invent new things that we don't have evidence for, like flying saucers. And um, this was revolutionary in the medieval world because the medieval world was full, stacked full of stuff that didn't really exist. And what William of Ockham said was, okay, if we want to do science, we've got to get rid of all of that. He said it, a religion can have uh, lots of stuff in it that there's no evidence for its existence, such as angels or demons and, and entities like that. That's fine for religion, but if we want to do science, you've got to get rid of all of that stuff. And he insisted on taking the simplest explanation for everything with only the entities that really exist, that we have evidence for, and and makes sense in as simple as possible way. So he's coming to us really right at that cusp, at this liminal moment between the age of faith and what is to follow. Uh, and so, I mean, it's, it's so fungible at that moment that, I mean, prior to his arrival at, Ox at Oxford at the University of Paris, the works of Aristotle were banned for a while. They were suppressed for a while. Greco-Roman science and philosophy has kind of been lost and is being rediscovered. And, and so in a way... I mean, Copernicus won't be born, born for another 100 years or so, but there's a way in which Occam is standing at a very specific fork in the road of the history of knowledge that we can see from our perspective now, right? And it's like he's standing there with a flag saying, go this way, take this fork, correct? Uh, absolutely. When he went to Oxford, he went to study theology, which was at the time called the Queen of Sciences. And this reflects what science was thought of at the time. It was a branch of theology. Essentially, it was the way, as, along with studying things like rocks and stones and fish or uh, other animals, you also studied questions such as what are the gates of heaven made of um, what is the nature of sin and those kind of questions were all parts of science so science at that time wasn't really separated from theology it was just the same thing it was a way that you could approach god by studying the world and uh, for example all all uh, the objects in the world such as all animals had purposes which they called uh, teloi or telos from which we get teleology all of those led to God in the sense that the purpose of acorns was to feed pigs, the purpose of pigs was to feed humans, the purpose of humans was to worship God. So to study acorns or study pigs was part of science, but it led to God. So everything in science was thought to lead to God. And that's why science was called, uh, theology was called the queen of sciences. It was the most important science. William Rockham said no. He was the first person, I believe, in the history of the world to very clearly say there is science on one side for which you use reason and his razor, Occam's razor, you take the simplest explanation. That's on one side of human endeavor. On the other side is religion. He was a Franciscan friar. As far as we know, he was devout for the, till the end of his days. But he insisted that religion was not based on reason. It was based on faith. And really, it was a completely separate endeavor than uh, to science and should be kept separate. He was the first person to make that. All of uh, modern science depends on that step. You know, Jojo, I also wonder, I wonder to what degree... You know, yes, the, the the dichotomy that you've just set up is obviously there and very important. But, you know, 
I wonder to what degree there's a critique that, there that's specific to the Roman Church. You know, he says entities um, should not be multiplied beyond necessity. You know, the Church is becoming increasingly polytheistic. The Pope is infallible. Come to that. There's actually two Popes at that moment. He gets in trouble with the one who's in Avignon. Mary is divinely assumed in, into heaven, body and soul. There are saints. Uh, the bread and wine transubstantiate into blood and flesh. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of multiplying entities beyond necessity that's going on inside the religion piece of it. Is he directing that critique at the church at all, or is he just trying to make the distinction you were talking about before? Well, he was, um, first of all, making that distinction because he felt that uh, uh, science needed to be separated from religion. And although he he was in the West, he uh, was subject to the Catholic Church, the same criticisms could be leveled at all of the great religions of the world at that time. Islamic religion was similarly, um, uh, theology came first, theology was more important than science, and theology ruled the sciences. In China, Confucianism is really uh, similarly uh, it's a it's a uh, attempt to be consistent with the dictates of heaven, and in India it's the same. So, all across the world, and in fact all times, really theology is and science aren't separated. They were separated once in the history of the world, and that happened in the medieval world in Europe. And the first person to make that claim was William of Ockham. If anyone can find anyone else who did it early, I would be, I would be interested to hear. Is there, um, does he even get anything, like in the village of Ockham, is there like a gift shop or anything for him? Or? <laughs> There's a pub. Oh, it's a pub, okay. Well, that's, that pub may be, that may be the highest possible compliment. So <laughs> let me just let me just jump over into, and, and maybe look at an application uh, of this, uh, maybe even a slightly more contemporary application. And I decided to pick an area you've worked in. Although if we get into your work on this, we'll, we'll, we'll never get out in time. so But I want to talk a little bit about, just use consciousness as an example. So there's a, a debate about consciousness that often is divided between the physicalists, people like Patricia Churchland, uh, who says basically it's all biomedical, that's what consciousness is, anything we haven't explained yet, we eventually will when we figure it out. And then there are other people like David Chalmers who say, well, no, there's there, there's something else going on there that, that sentience can't be explained in purely physical terms. So if we apply Occam's razor to that, Churchland would probably say she wins, right? Because she's, she's sticking with a, a biomedical explanation. But, but react to that. How, how would you apply Occam to that particular argument? I, well, I would agree with Churchland that we've got to be physicalists. We shouldn't invent new stuff. Our first attempt must always be to invent, to make our theories out of the components of the world that we know exist. I think Churchland does have a problem there, though, in that I think there is a fundamental problem with trying to account for consciousness in material. Um, Churchland is a materialist, and she believes the material of, of the brain, the matter of the brain, its neurons, can account for consciousness. I don't think that is the case. I think you've got to go to the electromagnetic fields generated by the brain to account for consciousness. They are just as physical 
as matter, but they have a lot of properties which are much better at explaining consciousness than the matter of the brain. All of the information is joined up in an electromagnetic field, and that's what you need for consciousness. You need all of the inf information to be integrated. It's all going to be joined up to account for our conscious experience where everything that I look at in the room I'm in at the moment is stuck together in a single conscious experience. So right, so it so, in matter. It can be done in EM fields. So I think the simplest explanation of consciousness, it's in the electromagnetic field of the brain. It's real, it's physical, but it's not matter. But if you wanted to go even further, if you wanted to go out there with David Chalmers, he might say, if we were going to be a strict constructionist about Occamism, that, you know, he's given permission by the term beyond necessity. If, in fact, there isn't a solid physicalist or materialist explanation that answers all questions about consciousness, would he, would he not be permitted by Occam to say, all right, well, I'm going to really start thinking about this in a way that, that doesn't correspond to existing knowledge? You can do if you can't find an explanation, but I believe you can. I believe uh, materialists have a problem, but if you're a physicalist and you accept that stuff can also be um, explained in terms of the electromagnetic fields that we know exist around us and are responsible for driving our Wi-Fi systems and sending radio signals around the world, if we believe that, that stuff can be the substrate of consciousness, then I don't think you have a problem. So I think I would stick to the entities that we know about before inventing something new. If you really can't explain something then uh, with the existing entities, then sure, you have to go out. And some at some points, we, we go there and we say dark matter exists, even though we don't really know what it is because of its gravitational <laughs> effect on, on uh, galaxies. Similarly, dark energy exists because we know the universe is accelerating in its expansion. So we can sometimes do that, but only really when forced to, and we're still try our best to kind of pin it down, find out what dark matter is made of, for example. Similarly for consciousness, we could invent something uh, new, but I believe that the stuff we know about, um, mm. electromagnetic fields. Fair enough. Sufficient. So in a way, is simplicity, if we get back to Occam, is simplicity... It could be argued that it's a little bit in the eye of the beholder, too, uh, in the sense that, um, well, take Darwinian evolution. Uh, a person might say, well, no, a simple explanation uh, is a one-stroke divine invention of life, you know, whereas the Darwinian explanation isn't really simple. It has an awful lot of moving parts. Uh, you have to understand a, a lot of different things uh, in order to make it work. Um, so I, I don't know. I mean, each side could make some kind of claim to simplicity. Yeah, I, I guess one of the difficulties about simplicity is it's not all that simple to <laughs> define what's simple, what's simple and what's complicated. But uh, say the divine explanation of, of uh, life on Earth. Well, uh, the divine explanation is for the, I don't know, billion species that there are on a planet. There's a billion separate creations. <laughs> That's much, much, much more complicated than um, a single origin of life, and then a set of rules, natural selection and mutation, uh, and that's all you need. And you get the rest for free. You get all the millions and billions of species that live on our planet for free. So 
it is simpler in that sense. But I agree with you, there is a problem. Uh, simplicity is to a certain extent in the eye of the beholder, um, but there are some ways of quantifying it. And uh, the, the way that I, I describe in my book, Life is Simple, is it's embedded in Bayesian reasoning. This is a form of statistical reasoning in which we uh, can identify which, are the, which is the most uh, probable hypothesis. And if you like, I could briefly explain how how um, how that works. I'm actually going to take us to a break right here, uh, but okay. uh, I, I don't know if we can circle back to that or not, because we're going to take a break right now. We're with John Joe McFadden. He's going to stay with us. Author of Life is Simple, How Occam's Razor Sets Science Free and Shapes the Universe. When we come back, we're going to add Kurt Anderson. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. All right, we're back. We're talking about Occam's Razor. Uh, we're talking with John Joe McFadden, a scientist and author of Life is Simple, How Occam's Razor Sets Science Free and Shapes the Universe. Joining us also, we're so uh, proud and honored, Kurt Anderson is back with us, uh, of course, co-founder of Spy Magazine and, of course, the co-creator of Studio 360 and its host. Uh, his newest book is Evil Geniuses, The Unmaking of America, A Recent History. I think more relevantly, he's the author of Fantasyland, How America Went Haywire, A 500-Year History. Uh, America has gone so haywire that people who want to talk about Occam's razor do it without even knowing what it is. Uh, here is something very, very recent that at least caused a stir, a storm of derision on the internet. This is the libertarian uh, commentator Dave Rubin uh, attempting to know what Occam's razor is. Now, Dave, I'm always struggling here with something called the Hanlon uh, razor, Hanlon's razor as well, which says you don't attribute to malice what can be chalked up to incompetence. But then we have this whole other thing going on here, and I don't know where to come down on this. So enlighten me, please. Well, John, let me give you another razor, Occam's razor. If something can go wrong, it will. And that basically is the tagline for this administration. That is not Occam's razor. That is Murphy's <laughs> Law. We are in so much trouble uh, that, he, that he thought that. So, Kurt, you know, I mean, you've essentially written of America as kind of anti-Occam land. You could go with a medically established understanding of what's going on with the pandemic, or you could consult with Joe Rogan. Uh, you could accept the election results, or you could decide to believe there's bamboo in some of the ballots. You could go with a simple and elegant explanation of where Obama was born, or you could follow 
follow a more complex line of logic uh, uh, called birtherism. Uh, you could go with the obvious and tragic understanding of the mass murder at Sandy Hook, or you could go with Alex Jones. But, you know, if the op- opposite of Occam's razor is a rabbit hole, this is a land of rabbit holes. Uh, and, and maybe, according to you, always was? Uh, yeah, and, and, and we are certainly, yes, as you're suggesting, not the land of, of Occam, and never have been entirely, although we've kept our fantastical predispositions, our, our kind of national weakness for exciting falsehoods in check for, for, for a few centuries. And then that, those various checks uh, were loosened in, 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 in various ways, especially in the last half century, where we have gone back to, as I, I noted when Professor McFadden said, a medieval world full of things that don't didn't really exist. Talking about Occam's time, of course, uh, that's where we are. Where we, we we America is is as as a movie famously once said, going medieval uh, in a different way than that movie meant. Pulp Fiction, but but the things that don't really exist, which were always entertained more in in America than than other developed places, uh, has has really gone out of control these last decades. Um, and, and that's partly when you say, yeah, always existed, always existed. I mean, you know, we were, we were invented, if you will, uh, by European uh, founders who were extreme Protestant Christians who, 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 among other things, believed in all kinds of medieval uh, Christian beliefs and, and, understandings of the Bible and biblical prophecy that the rest of Protestant Christianity in Europe had left by the wayside as the 16th century turned to the 17th century, but not these guys. So that was part, that is part of our DNA. And, and especially for the last half century with the revival of that kind of medieval, essentially, uh, Christianity, pre, pre-Protestant, of course, Protestants didn't exist in the medieval times. Um, it has become specifically anti-science and thus specifically, no, no Occam's razor for me. Uh, uh, and, and beyond the religious part, Americans have, as I explain in, or argue in Fantasyland, had a weakness for ex- exciting falsehoods, for, for blurring fiction and reality whenever possible, and not just in the case of religion. So, yeah, QAnon, for instance, as being the current ultimate <laughs> anti-Occam uh, uh, group of conspiracy theorists uh, and collective authorships of this constantly uh, evolving uh, meta-mega conspiracy theory, it's, it's, it's more exciting, it's more interesting, like fiction is. I mean, if, if you're a fiction writer, which you and I both are, as well as the other things we do, Occam's Razor is not the guiding principle of writing fiction. Too boring. Right, you want to make it interesting, so therefore, uh, you do, and and, and that's I think, uh, not uniquely but peculiarly and definingly American weakness is yeah. to make things more interesting. I, I want to circle back to that because I, I think there's some more points worth making uh, about that. But so yeah, uh, John Joe McFadden, if, if you want to find some people who do know what Occam's razor is and don't confuse it with Murphy's law, um, go to the group of people who self-identify now as skepticism. Skepticism is now kind of a discernible and understandable movement. Uh, and it seems to be the place that still cherishes the, the the dichotomy you set up in the A section, but but I'm sure you have more to say about that. 
Yeah, skepticism is really um, based on Occam's razor. It says, you know, don't believe in stuff that you don't have evidence for. And I think um, William of Occam's uh, was in a similar in a similar position. He, he, the world was filled with stuff that people just believed in, and. And yes, I guess, as Kurt was saying, it's often because it's a more interesting world if we believe in fairies, if we believe in angels, if we believe in demons. It's the world is more interesting and fun, but it doesn't make any better sense. And ultimately, it drives us to doing daft things and um, and not live living a rational life. And that is something that is a problem. Um, we, I think we, we have to kind of work out ways of how we identify what is the what is the simple solution and often it's it comes down to something very simple if it's easy to say if it's quick it's simple so for example we can say that the uh, SARS-CoV-2 virus came from a bat mm. very simple it's happened before other viruses have done the same or you can invent a very long elaborate conspiracy theory about it to choose which is the simplest, to choose which one is more likely to be true, choose the explanation that takes the fewest words. And I think if we use that simple form of Occam's razor, I call a kind of pocket Occam's razor, then we could make a lot more sense of our world. We can still keep the fun stuff for reading about them in novels and making great movies as America does, but we have to realize it's in the movies and not necessarily in the real world where these exist things exist. Right. Uh, we're going to get into that, actually, the, exa- the exact example that you uh, cited uh, with Dr. Lisa Sanders at the end, because it's gotten a little bit more complicated than that uh, of late. But but yeah, I mean, obviously, if we, it, it, we do it all the time, uh, I mean, the simpler explanation uh, of why, as you've pointed out, why your date didn't show up or something like that uh, is, the, is usually the true one. The really elaborate one usually means that somebody's covering something up or leading us in some kind of odd direction that's not that helpful. But, but Kurt, I want to come back to your point about culture because I, I think very specifically, I mean, yes, we want culture to be interesting. We want fiction to be interesting. But I think it goes beyond that. You know, I mean, I was just combing through popular culture that invokes Occam. In Star Trek, I'm pretty sure Mr. Spock invokes Occam mm. by name at least once. But the ultimate lesson of Star Trek is that Spock's reductionism isn't quite enough. You need, you know, Kirk and his kind of sense of instinct, stuff like that. In the X-Files, there are multiple mentions uh, of Occam. Scully is a physicalist. Mulder mocks it as Occam's principles of limited imagination. Uh, But the ultimate drift of that show is for Scully to let go of some of her Spock-style reliance on science and at least partially embrace Mulder's multiplication uh, of essences. Uh, And to that bonfire, I would add Dan Brown, whose fiction posits this enormous world of arcana, of hidden truths, of multiple meanings and multiplied uh, versions uh, of what might have been considered considered either settled truth or belief. I mean, it's, it's, it goes further, Kurt. In a way, they set up the dichotomy and they ask you to choose the anti-Occam one. Well, and, and like so many both so- kinds of both sidesism today, they are set up as equal in value, right? Which, isn't, which is to say, you know, I would say <laughs> that, that science and, and conventional rationality and conventional Occam's razorism should be given more credence. And yes, not everything can be reduced. I, I, it's true that not, not everything is Spock, that, you know, the cog- cognitive scientists say, explain 
um, very persuasively that all understanding, all true understanding of reality and existence requires emotional subjectivity of various kinds thrown into the mix, thrown into the mix, not instead of or equal to or supplanting reason, rationality, and science. So that's that's the problem there. And and part of the American cultural problem, I think, is is our our subjectivity, which is a, a, a part of our individualism and hyper-individualism, which is to say, if I believe it in my gut, it's true. Whatever you intellectuals and scientists say, it's true. I believe it. It's my, as we now say, lived experience. <laughs> um, and, and that adds to Americans' unfortunate uh, willingness, weakness for uh, belief in, in fairy tales um, over, you know, uh, empirical reality. So, uh, you know, the, the, the counter argument to that or the counter narrative anyway, uh, John Joe, might be years that in some ways, though, contemporary culture embraces the simplistic over the over ornamented, over complex, unnecessarily detailed, uh, I don't know, sort of Victorian steampunk uh, look of things from the past. Right. There, there's ways in which we do like a more simple and direct path between the creator and us? Yeah, and, and uh, strangely enough, that has largely come from America. The great uh, American architects like Frank Lloyd Wright were very minimalist in their, their straight lines, uh, getting rid of superfluous features uh, in uh, music, uh, people like Philip Glass and in uh, literature. Um, similarly, Americans have often excelled in in giving us the simplest forms of expression. And I think in culture, um, it works. Um, but I, I guess on the other side, yes, as uh, Kurt pointed out, there is that individualist, individualist streak, uh, which is very fundamental to American culture, I believe. And um, that does allow everyone to set up their own set of rules and to say, well, I don't care what you think. I believe this and my, my, uh, and I will stick to that no matter what you say. But remember that in terms of the other things that you uh, uh, were alluding to in Dr. Spock versus Captain Kirk, for example, the uh, Occam's razor says entities should not be multiplied beyond necessity. And often people who criticize it often leave out that last clause beyond necessity. We can't account for human emotions without a lot of complexity. And Occam's razor allows it. It doesn't say that we, everything has to be simple. It just says that we have to have the simplest explanation of it. And that explanation may still be hugely complex. So it doesn't force us to think everything is simple. And I think people often uh, forget that. Uh, the world is complicated and we have to accept that and Occam's razor accepts it. But it says the best way of reasoning about it is still to accept only the simplest solutions. Although, Kurt, that returns us to what John, Joe, and I were talking about in the first segment, which is simplicity can be in the eye or at least the argument of the beholder. A conspiracy theorist can say, look, once you grant my initial premise, which is that <laughs> nothing is as it seems, and so-and-so, the elders of Zion or whoever it is you're, you're going to decide is actually pulling all the strings, once you grant my premise, it all locks into place, whereas the quote-unquote realistic look at things leaves all kinds of of loose and dangling and difficult to explain ends. So I don't know. React to that. 
No, that's absolutely true. And 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 again, as I talk about, write about in Fantasyland. I mean, I I I believe my my uh, sort of inclination to believe things are more complicated that you can't. Oh, it's not, you know, it's not reducible to this or that. Don't don't fall for these conspiracy theories. And yet, in my newer book, Evil Geniuses, I came to understand that. It, it's it's closer to simple than I realized of how the the rich and the the powerful um, shifted our economic paradigm forty years ago. So it is a constant balancing act. One thing I thought of as I heard uh, you guys talking about science and and this difficulty between uh, you know is is it always simple? Well, certainly physics. I think of twentieth century physics, twenty first century physics. Uh, and quantum physics became so not materialist, not easily understandable, so non-Akamish to the average person. I wonder if that hasn't, and, and other ever more abstruse realms of science as well, hasn't encouraged normal folks to think, well, that's that's not so, that's not Occam's razor. I don't get string theory, what, huh? I, I think, I wonder if science itself in its current expressions and forms hasn't added to the ability of civilians to to sort of say, well, my my kooky theories are no kookier than string theory, that neither of them are experimentally proven. Well, they, so I've only got a minute left, and this is right up your straza, John Joe. I don't know if you can possibly <laughs> address it in 60 seconds. Yeah. Quantum mechanics is weird, for example, and it's hard to get your head around. But the world will be weirder without it. There are phenomena that can only be explained with quantum mechanics. So although it seems odd, it's odd, but not necessarily complicated. It has a very deep mathematical simplicity uh, in the science. And if you try to make sense of the world without quantum mechanics, then you've got to make a very complicated world. There you go. We're going to stop there. John Joe McFadden's book is Life is Simple, How Occam's Razor Sets Science Free and Shapes the Universe. Kurt Anderson has many books. In terms of this conversation, I would recommend Fantasyland, How America Went Haywire, A 500-Year History. We will be back with Dr. Lisa Sanders after this. I'm preaching this sermon to show. Before we get to our final guest here, I have to do some quick thank yous. Uh, one of them is to Cat Pastor, who is our technical producer this day and every day, and senior producer of the Colin McEnroe Show, Lily Tyson, uh, produced the, this episode. So one of the places that Occam's Razor comes up um, is in the world of medicine. And here to talk about that is Dr. Lisa Sanders, a clinical educator in the Primary Care Internal Medicine Residency Program at the Yale School of Medicine. She's also the author of the Diagnosis Column for the New York Times magazine and is behind the show, the Netflix show Diagnosis. She was a technical advisor for the TV show House, which will come up in a few minutes. And there are some who say that House is sort of a fusion of her and Sherlock Holmes, which is a very formidable concept all by itself. So uh, welcome to our show. Thank you so much. Nice to be here. 
So I'm a huge fan. Oh, thank you. Well, I'm a big fan of yours too. So it's mutual. And and so I mean, we've been talking about Occam's razor in, in different contexts. Uh, I assume that in medicine, when Occam's razor is invoked or implicitly invoked, it it means a, a specific thing. What what does it mean to you in that context? Uh, to me, it means that, you know, you look at how a patient presents, what their symptoms are, uh, what the labs say, what the exam shows, and you try to come up with a single diagnosis that could account for everything you can find. doesn't happen always that way, but that, that's kind of the goal for both the doctor and the patient. Right. And, and I mean, in a way, I suppose this is somewhat complicated. I'm getting a little bit ahead of where I want it to be, but let's, let's deal with it here. I mean, this has been somewhat complicated by the fact that patients now have an unusual amount of access to a lot of arcane and somewhat obscure information and not entirely reliable information, which they can get by Googling their symptoms endlessly uh, and, and maybe coming back to the doctor saying, well, you told me I had this, but how come you're not investigating this thing that's, you know, happened to eight people on the island of Mykonos uh, and, and maybe nowhere else. You know, I appreciate it when my patients are involved in their own care. Lots of people just aren't. And mm. uh, not surprisingly, there are people who often need doctors as well. So I very much appreciate people who take the initiative and try to figure out what's going on. And I welcome that kind of information. First of all, you might hear about something you didn't hear the first time. Either it wasn't mentioned or you didn't pay attention to it or it didn't seem as important as it does in the patient's investigation of their own illness. So I think that, you know, I think that those obscure places on the Internet where people go for information, can be useful, and certainly they ought to be addressed by the doctor. So, um, actually, to this point, um, let's actually play a clip from House. This is Season 1, Episode 3. The episode is actually called Occam's Razor, if you need a finer point put on things. Uh, so you're going to hear Hugh Laurie as Dr. Gregory House and then his, his uh, three young associates uh, mulling over a case. Cameron was right. No condition explains all these symptoms. Orange and green covers everything. Orange and green? Two conditions contracted simultaneously? Occam's razor. The simplest explanation is always the best. And you think one is simpler than two? Pretty sure it is, yeah. Baby shows up. Chase tells you that two people exchanged fluids to create this being. I tell you that one stork dropped the little tyke off in a diaper. You're gonna go with the two or the one? I think your argument is specious. I think your tie is ugly. Why is one simpler than two? It's lower, lonelier. Is it simpler? Each one of these conditions is about a thousand to one shot. That means that any two of them happening at the same time is a million to one shot. Chase says the cardiac infection is a ten million to one shot, which makes my idea ten times better than yours. All right, so there's a couple of things going on here we're talking about. <laughs> oh, obviously, he sounds exactly like you, too. I mean, I, I can see it now. But... Um, but maybe, maybe so one of the things that's happening there, they're at sort of a dry erase board, and he's circling things in, in different colors with, with markers. Um, and, and the argument is, well, what if two conditions are producing this particular panoply of, of symptoms? Um, maybe it's worth bringing up a, a different razor. There's Hickam's dictum. Uh, tell us about that. 
So Hickam's dictum uh, is usually, I usually bring it up in opposition to Occam's razor. Um, it comes from uh, a doctor at Duke. Uh, I think he's still at Duke, uh, John Hickam. And he says that a patient can have as many diseases as they please. So it's nice when you can find a single answer that elegantly solves all the problems or ties everything together, but that's not reality. Real, the, the truth is that patients often have more than one disease. Right. Uh, by the way, if anybody ever asked, I would like to have zero diseases. Uh, I didn't realize <laughs> it, it was elective. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you know, it seems to me that in, in some ways we've just been through and are maybe still in the middle of a kind of two-year national plebiscite on this question of uh, are you going to listen to uh, fairly direct uh, explanations, uh, some might say medical or scientific orthodoxy about things, or are you going to look around and say that 5G uh, beams caused the development of, of the coronavirus? Uh, are you going to investigate uh, medicines that are off-label uses for something like that? I mean, it seems as though what's happening right now, it, it, you know, is that we we've been through this period where. You know, if the if the adage is if you hear hoof beats, assume it's horses, not zebras. There's just a whole zoo of hoofed animals running around in people's minds right now. So, I mean, what does that do to the kind of methodology that that you've probably subscribed to for many years? Well, all of this is based on a trusting relationship between doctor and patient. Without that relationship, none of this matters because people are going to believe what they want to believe. Um, you know, they're not going to believe someone they don't know or don't trust. Um, I like to build a trusting relationship from the beginning. It's not always possible. Mm -hmm. But, you know, uh, if somebody comes to me with their theory about ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine or the unusual origin of COVID, you know, on things that don't matter, we can agree to disagree. But on things that do matter, like whether I should get vaccinated or not, whether I should use uh, ivermectin to prevent uh, developing COVID, that's an important thing. And we have to discuss that and talk about the nature of evidence and what the studies say. And, uh, and in ivermectin, there's apparently some malfeasance with uh, the studies that were published. And I think at least one of the two studies and possibly both of the two studies have been retracted by their journals. So, you know, you just have to get, you have to be willing to go there with your patient. You just have to help them get to a point of view that you think is reasonable. Don't always succeed. Um, but people are free to make their own choices, even though some of those choices are really bad, in my opinion. Yeah, I guess, I mean, I sense in you a determined, you could correct me if you want, but I sense in you a kind of determined optimism about this, that, that somehow or other reason will usually prevail, and, and that the, the collaboration between uh physician and patient uh, actually can be a, a fairly productive one if the communication is good and there's not a lot of, you know, sort of crappy science being being entered into it. But don't you feel as though we're kind of sliding down the wrong side of the hill? I mean, I don't know. Having, having gone through the last two years, I sort of feel like we're not in as good a place as maybe we even were in 2018. 
But well, what's your sense? I think you're right. You know, I mean, I, I think that, um, you know, I have a friend who went to Yale Medical School, went to Yale Medical School with me, <laughs> one of my closest friends, who is 100% on the hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin train of kind of nutbaggery. Um, she's still my friend. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't send any of my patients to her, <laughs> but you know, uh, you even smart people can become confused um, it's, these days. It seems. Yeah, and I, I, maybe the countervailing argument is that even even smart people can make the opposite kind of mistake. And I'll give you an example, and I'd love to know what you think about it. So, uh, you know, um, for a, I, I should say that. And I guess if you listen to this show, you may know this, that during during the whole pandemic, I tried to get a lot smarter about all this. And so, yeah, I'm listening to This Week in Virology every week and, and I'm reading anything I get my hands on. And one of the things that was clear to me was that the scientific establishment, to the extent that there is one, the scientific and biomedical establishment, was inclined to discount the idea of a Wuhan lab leak. It just partly because they, they knew the lab. A lot of them, I listened to This Week in Virology, a lot of them have been to that lab. They know the director. They have a lot of respect for the director. And then, you know, I think one of the turning points I'll lead up was John Stewart appearing on the Stephen Colbert show and kind of objecting to this in a way, the way that a comedic satirist will. And at one point he said, wow, there's an outbreak of chocolatey goodness in Hershey, Pennsylvania. Maybe it's because a pangolin ate a cocoa bean, but it's probably coming from the factory. <laughs> and, and, and there was sort of a way in which I think the scientific establishment kind of rejected Occam a little bit for a while there and said, oh, no, 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 let's not look at this thing that seems like a pretty simple, elegant, direct connection between a lab where they research this kind of thing and then an outbreak in the same city. I don't know. Give, give me your sense of that. This just in, doctors also human? Yes. <laughs> you know, I mean, of course we want to think that doctors didn't do this. Mm. You know, um, my daughter met uh, Ted Kennedy Jr. when she was about four or five, and he was wearing short pants. Mm. And she asked him, she said, how do you get your leg into that skinny metal rod and they said oh my leg's not not in that rod that is my leg doctors cut off my leg and she just freaked out she just said no doctors are good doctors are good well that's certainly how we think of ourselves you know Uh, and sometimes uh we're wrong Right. I mean, we should just say for people missing the context here, Ted Kennedy Jr. as a kid had cancer, had to have that part of his leg removed. Doctors were good uh, when they did that. Um, so, yeah. Thank I mean, you. Yes. <laughs> um, so, um, yeah, I don't want people to think a mean doctor did that. So, um, yeah, and I think another place we've seen this, uh, and you would know so much more about this than I do, and I realize I'm opening a huge can of worms, so let's only just look at a few of those worms. But it seems to me in the so-called Lyme Wars, you know, that some, I've started to read some articles saying, this is a good thing. Patients got together and they said to the medical establishment, yeah, maybe you're following Occam's razor in terms of ordering treatment or trying to understand this disease, but you don't get it. You're you're missing the point. You're not treating us right. And and I assume from your, your first comment in our conversation, you think that's in some ways, a good thing that patients get organized and say, hey, you're missing something about our experience. 
Yes. You know, we have this diagnosis uh, in medicine called medically unexplained symptoms. And to me, that diagnosis is missing two words. It is medically unexplained by me. It doesn't mean that, you know, I mean, what, what we try to mean with that line, medically unexplained symptoms, is symptoms for which we don't have an answer right now. But that's not really how it comes across. The way it comes across is if you don't have anything, it's all in your head. So I think the humility, if people would just, if doctors would just insert, even if just silently in their own mind, by me into that and remind themselves that they don't know everything. Um, and, uh, you know, usually we think if there's something going on, it will show up somehow. There'll be some test that's going to be different. There'll be some exam that's going to be different. Something will tell us that something is going on, but that's not always the case. That depends on where we are right now. And so I think that when patients come to us with symptoms that don't make sense to us right now, sure, it could be the fact that they just got fired from their job and they're in the middle of a divorce and their house is being foreclosed on and it's showing up in their body. It could also, they could also, but you have to at least entertain the possibility that there's also something going on that you just don't know about. And maybe nobody knows about it. Maybe it has, maybe the test, to, I tell this to patients all the time, maybe the test to identify what it is you have hasn't been developed and we'll just have to wait. Um, I think you can't be arrogant in medicine. Be arrogant at your own peril. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, and I, I sense also, and reading your, your stuff, uh, I get the sense too, that there is a sort of sweet spot that has to be looked for. I'll give you an example from my profession. Okay, so when I was starting out as a reporter, I had this editor who had the what he called the three-minute mile a rule, which is sort of a version of Occam's razor. He said, look, if someone shows up at our newsroom and claims he ran a mile in three minutes— yeah, you could leave the newsroom and go with them down to the track and time them and stuff like that and you know use up, use up your afternoon that way. But he almost definitely didn't run a three-minute mile. So, so don't – that's not a good use of your time. Uh, and, and there's a way in which I sense in medicine, yeah, I could come in and you could yeah, – with some symptoms and you could run probably an infinite number of tests uh, on me for all kinds of things. But there's a sweet spot you're looking for, a kind of heuristic sweet, sweet spot, right? Test for the things that make sense. Uh, don't give up looking for a cause of the symptoms. But on the other hand, you could really go crazy testing somebody. Well, first of all, testing people for everything will get you the wrong answer because, you know, no test is perfect. And if you test somebody who doesn't have a disease for a disease, for a specific disease, you're going to get a positive some of the time. And that positive will just be wrong. And you will tell this patient that they have this, even though they don't. So you have to be reasonable. And when you say test, I know that what you're thinking is a blood test or an imaging study or something like that. But testing is also thinking it through and seeing if somebody matches what the expectation is for this disease. You know, a disease on the internet or in a book looks very different than a disease in an actual patient. And it takes experience and knowledge to recognize the same disease in that different kind of context. So 
Sure, you have you have to keep an open mind. You have to do tests, but those tests don't require always require bodily fluids or imaging. Sometimes you can just think it through. It's best if you explain how you're thinking it through. But, you know, that's also a test for a diagnosis. Wow. That's that was, that was really impressive. Uh, we're going to have to stop there. Come back some other time, though. I'd love to talk to you about all this stuff. Uh, this is really interesting. <laughs> uh, but uh, I know you're busy. Uh, Dr. Lisa Sanders is a clinical educator in the primary uh, care internal medicine residency program at Yale School of Medicine. That is a mouthful. Uh, and the author of the diagnosis column for New York Times Magazine. Uh, and uh, also behind the Netflix show Diagnosis. Uh, listen, thanks for your time today. This is really terrific. Thanks. This is a fun conversation. Okay, we're all done for the day. Uh, Thanks for listening. Well, of course, as usual, we'll be back tomorrow.